Well, let's uh, turn again then with um, a view to God's help to Revelation 6 and the opening of the seals which seal the book of future world history. And we are effectively being invited, along with John, to come and see what happens as these seals are opened. Come and see. So this chapter, uh, like the one before it, is taking us up into the heavenly throne room, uh, way beyond the kings and queens of this world. And when we come into the heavenly throne room, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But again, there is particular emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see him here crowned after his coronation and invested with all power in heaven and on the earth. And the scroll to which we were introduced in chapter 5, that's the scroll containing future history, which was in the hand of God. It's a scroll that God holds out to be picked up. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who picks up the scroll. He alone has the authority to do that. And he begins to open the seals. And as he begins to open them, it's not just that the future is revealed or unveiled, which is what apocalypse means, but he is actually setting that future in motion. He is in control of it because all power in heaven and on earth is given into his hand so that nothing happens except through the mediator. That is the glory of who Christ now is as the exalted Lord and King. He is the mediator through whom God's rule is exercised upon the earth. And so he sets the future in motion. And all this is meant for the comfort of the church then and now. From the moment of Christ's coronation, we are to remember that everything that happens in this world is in the hand of our Lord and our Savior. And it is ultimately for our good, however difficult or trying or full of tribulation these things may be. And in the morning, we saw Christ uh, bringing God's judgments upon the earth. That kind of language is strange for many people today, particularly, sad to say, in evangelical churches. But it is the case that Christ brings the judgments of God upon the earth. And he brings them through the horsemen that we considered in the morning, the red and the black and the pale horse, who are bringing war, scarcity, and disease. So they come in from God's hand at various times in world history to chastise, to teach the nations, and even to discipline his own people. They come always at Christ's command and will. So the war in Eastern Europe is at Christ's command and will. The scarcity that is coming into Europe, the economic crisis, is at his command and will. 
the pestilence that was unleashed throughout the world is at Christ's command and will. And as we saw in the morning, if we don't heed the messages of God's horsemen, we will ourselves be exposed to the final judgment, which is again in Christ's own hand. As the fifth seal opens, as we saw in the morning, there is no local or temporary or mitigated judgment. It's a universal, permanent, and unrestrained judgment. A collapsing universe, a decreation, people are trying to hide from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So if we don't learn from God's dealings with us and in the world, then his judgment will finally overtake us. The one means of escape from that is, of course, through coming to faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves, enlisting on the side of the king and conquering with the king at the same time. But turning to tonight in particular, these judgments that Christ sends into the world in the form of these horsemen aren't just for the unbelievers. They are clearly for believers too. And very often the Lord's people find themselves touched by war, by scarcity, and by disease of various kinds. And Sometimes I suppose we wonder what the Lord is saying to ourselves in these things. But the main lesson being taught in this particular portion of Revelation, in fact, being taught in every portion in different ways, the main lesson being taught is that God keeps his people in relation to these judgments in different ways. And he does that as our conquering king. Now, I think I just touched on that this morning, but it's important to emphasize the context of this book. I suppose when people came to Christ first, in the first generation of Christian believers, they were so full of hope and optimism because I suppose they had a view that the gospel would just go from strength to strength and just crush all opposition and that the Lord's glory would be recognized perhaps immediately throughout the earth. It's a little bit like the way that it happens when we become Christians ourselves. We instinctively feel that everybody in our household and family will be converted. And beyond that, everybody we know will be converted. That's the way we think it's going to work. In fact, Paul tells us that some of the people in the congregation in Thessalonica had pretty much down tools in life, and they were waiting for the second coming because they were so full of the Lord that they expected him to return immediately. And so the first persecution under Nero was a shock. And it was such a shock that Paul tells us that most of those who had become ministers in the Asian churches had actually fallen away and renounced the faith. The churches were reeling, and many of the Lord's people were wondering what was happening when it seemed to be the case that hell was let loose on the earth and on the churches too. And John himself when he receives this vision of the revelation, is on the Isle of Patmos. He's there for his faith. He has been exiled there. He's worshiping on his own on the Lord's day and wondering what's happening 
and how long and why, the kind of questions we always ask ourselves. Well, here is the answer. And this book is given as a personal assurance from Christ to him, to you, and to me, that whatever befalls his people, Christ will take them through. He will deliver them either from tribulation or in tribulation or through tribulation. One way or another, the tribulation will not separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that really is the lessons being taught, is the lesson being taught in a series of visions, seven uh, visions, which contain a a progressive and parallel picture of how God develops his work from the coronation of Christ to the consummation. We're given coronation to consummation once. The picture changes, we're given it a second time. Picture changes, given it a third time. And each time we're given it, the picture is a little more full and a little more clear until at last, in Revelation 22, we are given the clearest and the most full picture of heaven and its wonder and its glory. So as I say, the lesson is that God keeps us in connection with the judgment that he sends out. War may come, scarcity may come, disease may come. These horsemen that Christ mysteriously sends. But lo and behold, in the midst of them all, he keeps us. And that takes us to the first horseman. Uh, which we deliberately missed out in the morning. But you'll notice that the first seal that opens in verse 6, or the first seal that Christ opens, and um, when it is opened, one of the living creatures calls to John to come and see. In verse 2, John looks, and here's the first horse. Not red for war, not black for famine, not pale for death. This is a white one. And the one who sits on it has a bow, and a crown is given to him, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. Now, people who interpret the book of Revelation uh, often vary in the meanings that they give. And to be quite honest, unless you have clear controls, uh, you won't have very clear meanings or Uh, Some of the meanings can be pretty arbitrary or random. Some people have seen the rider on this white horse as the Antichrist. That's actually quite a common view. There's lots of reasons why that's wrong, common as it is, and even though some good people teach it. when When you come to the book of the Revelation, the key is to interpret it always in the light of the Old Testament. It's as simple as that. The minute you move away from that, you're in trouble. So you always stick to the Old Testament, uh, particularly to the books of Zechariah and Daniel and the Psalms too. And when you read these, it should really be quite plain who this rider on the white horse actually is. I suppose it's easy for us to recognize him because we sang about him a moment ago. Psalm 45, where the Um, the King David sees a greater king than himself. And when we let that scripture interpret this scripture, it becomes far more plain. 
In Psalm 45, he sees Christ in his exalted glory, fairer than the sons of men, grace poured upon his lips. And he sees him riding on a horse, and he says to him, gird your sword on your thigh, mighty one. With your glory and your majesty, ride prosperously, ride in state, in glory, on account of truth, humility, and righteousness. And as you do so, your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Now, that's a Hebraic expression, an expression that they use in Hebrew. If your right hand teaches you something, that means that as you do it, you're discovering or learning. It means going through a process. So as the Lord goes through this process, conquering on the white horse, um, he experiences conquest. That's essentially all it's saying. His right hand of power experiences conquest. And his arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the people therefore fall under him. Now, this king is the one that we have here too. If you notice in chapter 6 of Revelation, we're told that the one who sits on it has a crown. So this isn't Christ in his humiliation. This is Christ in his exaltation. He's gone home, risen from the dead, ascended, not simply ascended, but crowned with glory and with honor. So he's got a crown. In verse 2 as well, he has a bow. No, that's to fight. It's a weapon of war. And as well as that, we're told that his purpose is to conquer. He goes out conquering and to conquer. So as he makes his way spiritually through this world on his white horse of conquest, his purpose is to bring the world into subjection to himself. And he's actually doing that. I, I refer to that this morning as a work in progress. And it is a work in progress because he is going out conquering and to conquer. So right now, if you were to see him, he is conquering, particularly every Sabbath day on which the gospel is preached. He is conquering and his purpose is to conquer. And he will not cease that conquest until all the nations come into subjection to himself. So this conqueror, has been given worldwide dominion by his father, and he will see to it that the world comes under that dominion. Psalm 45 tells us that the cause for which he fights is meekness, truth, and righteousness. And David wants him to ride prosperously, to ride in his majesty, throughout the whole world, for meekness, truth, and righteousness. Why? Because the world is full of lies, um, arrogance, and injustice. And whenever we come into perilous times, like I referred to in this morning, times like the times we're in right now, according to the Bible, these are perilous times, these things abound, human arrogance abounds, Injustice abounds and lies abound. But the cause for which our Lord Jesus fights 
is the cause that's dear to his own heart. It is the gospel cause, and it produces peace upon the earth through truth, meekness, and righteousness. And the reason he's presented for us, or to us, as riding on a horse and um, a military picture of a king conquering, the reason is because evil needs to be fought, needs to be fought. And, and God will use all kinds of weapons in fighting that evil. That's why he sends the horsemen of famine and war and scarcity. God uses an economic crisis to shake a nation that's proud and conceited. God can send a disease just to shake people who worship their own bodies and who are so full of self-confidence. God uses these messengers as arrows to pierce the hearts of the king's enemies and to teach them the importance of humility and of truth and of righteousness. Things that he sends into our portion, into our experience, even at a national or ecclesiastical level, to teach us our need of God, our need of the gospel, our need to be subject really and truly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 46, that we also sang earlier, reminds us of that. Come see what desolations he on the earth hath brought. He breaks the spear. He burns the chariot in fire. But notice that he uses war to defeat war. People will sometimes tell you that, that democracy is, is a hard-worn thing. And democracy is something that needs to be fought for and needs to be protected. Well, the gospel is the same. The Lord will prepare the path for the gospel by crushing opposition. And he uses all kinds of methods and means to do that. Because all power in heaven and earth has been given to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, amazingly, these judgments that you would expect to fall just on the unbeliever, on unbelieving kings and unbelieving states and nations, lo and behold, they sometimes fall upon the church too and upon the Lord's people. And uh, God alone knows fully why. Uh, we ourselves are in a condition where we sometimes need war and famine and chastisements disease. Um, God's church too needs these things to wake her up and to rouse her. We sometimes do as individuals ourselves too. But the lesson, as I mentioned earlier in Revelation, is that none of these things will separate you, if you are a Christian, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These tribulations may come, but they won't overwhelm us and they won't separate us from Christ. Now, God has different ways of keeping his own people in relation to his own judgments and chastisements. First of all, God can keep his people from them altogether. Second, he can keep his people in them. And third, he can keep his people through them. And he uses these different ways of preservation at different times in his own wisdom, as he is free to do. Let's take, first of all, the fact that God 
can keep his people from his own judgments. If you just go back a few pages in the Revelation itself, if you, if you go back to chapter 3, you find an example of this. At verse 7, you have John's letter, which is addressed to the minister or angel of the church that is located in Philadelphia. Now, <clears throat> although Nero's persecution has broken out at this point, it's not as hot as it's going to get. And John is telling the churches that it's going to get hotter. But he says this to the church in Philadelphia, which was a particularly faithful church, along with Smyrna. These were the two churches marked out for great faithfulness amongst the seven churches of Asia Minor. In verse 10, he says to the congregation this, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from, notice that, not in the hour of trial, but from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, there's no mistaking really what God is saying to this congregation, to the congregation in Philadelphia. He says, because, because of your faithfulness, which I have noted, by the way, and which I think commendable, because of that faithfulness, he says, when this storm really gathers its fury and when it's unleashed, I'm going to keep you from it altogether as a visible reward for your faithfulness to me. Uh, sometimes God does not only keep his people from trial like that, but he actually does so in a way that constitutes a kind of example to others, a visible thing, a visible preservation. I was thinking recently um, in Stornoway when uh, God tells us to go into our own rooms and to shut our door and pray to our Father who is in secret. He says that if we do that, our Father who sees in secret will reward us openly. There is an open reward in connection to being diligent in the secret place. It will show. It will show in your life and in your conduct. Well, that was the case here. Here's a faithful church, and God says, well, I'm just going to make that known. So when this hour of trial goes through the whole world, as they knew it at the time, he says, you're exempt, and the whole world will see that you're exempt. That's God's prerogative, and he just sometimes does it. He keeps us all together apart from these judgments. You have a similar example in the experience of the church in Moses' day, or just before that. Israel was settled in Goshen, in the land of Egypt. And when God took the destructive plagues on the land of Egypt, which plagues were, were typical of the judgments that he brings on the world, leading to the great and final judgment, God's people in Goshen were exempt from that. So, for example, when the thick darkness came upon the land for three days successively, everybody in Goshen was in light. God was making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. 
and the plagues that he afflicted upon the unbelieving Egyptians, well, God's people were just exempt from them. God kept them from the tribulation absolutely and altogether. And God may keep us from war and scarcity and disease. He may. But let me say right away that that's not God's usual way of keeping us in connection with trouble and trial. He normally doesn't preserve us from the thing, but he preserves us in it and through it. Let me take, first of all, preserving us in it or keeping us in the tribulation. By that, I mean simply that we go through it too, and we experience its effects, but we are not overwhelmed by it. Let me take the example of another congregation in Asia Minor. Go back to chapter 2 this time and verse 10. Here's the congregation in Smyrna. As I mentioned, the other faithful church marked for her faithfulness. In verse 10, notice what God says to her. Do not fear any of these things that you are about to suffer. Now, notice there's no exemption here. God's not saying I'm keeping the sufferings away. No, he says you're going into them. But don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So God's giving permission for that even. Uh, Believers are, are going to be hunted hounded down and imprisoned, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. I would tend to take the number 10 here as being symbolic. Again, a perfect number. This is a perfect trial from God. It's going to last, in other words, exactly the time of God's appointment. He he never allows us Um, to be tried beyond what we are able to endure. But along with the trial, which is what the word temptation means there, along with the trial, he makes a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. So here's God telling in advance, he says, 10 days, I know the time, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, whenever that may come, and I will certainly give you the crown of life. So you're going to be in it, he says. But his message is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything that you're going to suffer. Now, why should we really? If we know that God's the author of it, if we know that our Savior has sent it, if we know that he has sent it for our good, don't be afraid, he says. Don't be afraid. I'll keep you. When you pass through the waters, I'll hold on to you. They'll not overwhelm you. Stay faithful till death, and I most certainly will give you the crown of life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are examples of this, are they not? They weren't spared the fiery furnace. They they had to go through the whole agony, at least, of getting there and being cast into it. And Christ appeared with them in that fiery furnace and preserved them 
in that fiery furnace. Take Elijah at Cherith. Elijah was a man who prayed for God's judgment. That's a fearful prayer to offer. He prayed for it. He asked God to stop the rain, to teach the people. His logic was very straightforward. God had said in the early days that if Israel was unfaithful, he would send famine upon the land. Israel was unfaithful. God wasn't sending famine. Now, Elijah wants the people to know that the Lord is God. He wants them to know that the Lord means what he says and says what he means. And when God talks about judgment, that God means what he says and says exactly what he means. So he says, send famine on this land, that the people might know that there is a God in Israel. But when the famine came, Elijah had to live through it. Now, there was a preservation on him. He was brought mysteriously beside the brook Cherith. Uh, there was a supply of water there, obviously, and God also saw to it that mysteriously he was given bread and meat every day from the king's table. Quite a wonderful thing. There's so many lessons there. Uh, every morning and every evening, the unclean raven just brought him a, a morsel of meat and of bread from the king's table. It's not a lot of food. Scarcity. Elijah himself experienced the scarcity. Even the brook dried up and he watched it drying up. But God was saying, I'm with you. It's tough, but I'm with you. I'm doing my own work in you and I'm doing my work in Israel. And a day will come soon when they will say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So God protects, and he protects even in famine. There's a psalm there. In fact, I had intended to sing it, and for some reason I forgot it, but I'll quote it anyway uh, about, about God's preservation, where he tells us that uh, he keeps our souls in famine. Um, they shall not be ashamed. God knows the just man's days and their heritage remains, and they will not be ashamed when they see an evil time, right? They'll not be ashamed or put to shame or be ashamed when they see an evil time. And when the days of famine are, they satisfied shall be. That's a remarkable thing, that. that. That's true both of the famine of bread and of the famine of the word of God. And God will keep his people in these situations. He'll give them bread, and he'll give them the bread of his word too. So God keeps from trial sometimes, and he keeps in trial always. And he also keeps through trial. In other words, he takes his people out of it. Obviously, that can happen in two ways. Number one, the trial ends. God simply removes it. That would have obviously happened to the church in Smyrna when the 10 days were finished. It's over. But sometimes God removes the trial in another way, which is a mystery to us, and that's by allowing us to die allowing us to die. 
allowing the sword of war, the pestilence, or the scarcity to overwhelm his own people. And of course, death for the believer is the end of the trial. It's not the end of the trial for the unbeliever. I'm sometimes amazed, you know, at people who say, and I often hear it at funerals. I hear it at funerals from people who should know better, but they say, well, at least, you know, their sufferings are over. And they they say that in connection with people who don't know the Lord. And I think, well, what Bible are you reading? Which Bible tells us that the sufferings of the unbeliever are over at death? Friend, if you're not a believer in Christ tonight, let me tell you very plainly on the authority of God's word that your troubles are not over when you die. In fact, they're just beginning. They're just beginning. For the believer, their troubles absolutely are over at the point of their death because whatever tribulation they endured coming up to that point, God extricates them from it. He delivers them through that tribulation. I suppose it is a mystery why God allows these tribulations to come the way of his people, but he does. And in this chapter, the chapter that we're looking at, you have an example of it. If you turn, or if you just stay with chapter 6 here in Revelation, I want you to notice the opening of the fifth seal. The four horsemen are let loose on the earth. And then suddenly in verse 9, the fifth seal is open. Now, you expect the scene to stay on the earth and another horseman to come onto the earth. But lo and behold, the scene shifts to heaven. When he opened the fifth seal, verse 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their bread, I would imagine that perhaps they were ministers of the gospel, and their brethren, other Christians, would be killed as they were until that number was completed. So instead of a judgment on the earth, the opening of the fifth seal leads us into heaven where there's a call for judgment, and it comes from the altar. Now, in this highly symbolic and visual representation of heaven, there is an altar before God. Now, in a sense, of course, there's always an altar before God because without the shedding of blood, uh, there is no remission of sins. Every time we approach God's presence, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we are appealing the merit of a sacrifice. The altar was a place where a sacrifice was offered and blood was poured out. The blood represented the life and it trickled down the side of the altar. Here, the offering on the altar is not a bull or a goat. It's not not even the Lord Jesus Christ, 
It is the Lord's people who have given their lives for the Lord, which constitutes a sacrifice in God's eyes. And as their blood trickles down the altar, there is a representation of their souls gathered there. Uh, those who have been slain for Christ's sake, and they are calling out to God. And they're asking, how long until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I want you to notice there that the souls of believers in heaven uh, are praying for God's justice to be enacted upon this earth. They are praying for holy justice to be enacted upon this earth. Some people are squeamish about these things, but um, we'd better learn to get over these things. These are holy souls, sinless souls, praying for God's judgment to be enacted upon the earth. And God tells them to wait a little while longer. There's a kind of holy a holy longing and desire for these people to see righteousness on the earth, sin banished from the face of the earth, um, and God's peace and God's holy rule established on the earth. Wait, God says. And he gives them a white robe so that they will themselves be like the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will wait patiently until their Lord and Savior enacts that judgment upon the earth. These people, although they've died, they've been kept and delivered too. You can't argue from the fact that they've died. You can't argue from the fact that they've been killed. And, and you can't argue from the fact that God allowed them to be killed to say that, well, they were never kept and delivered because they were kept. They were kept in their sacrifice and they were delivered through that sacrifice. Remember, for example, what the Lord said when he told his disciples that times like this would come. He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. That's how the Lord put it. It's a wonderful way to put it. Don't be afraid of people who kill your body and can't do anything after that. It's nothing. They, they can't do anything. In fact, several of the martyrs who died, both in Scotland and in England, and indeed elsewhere, if I remember rightly, used that kind of language when they were either being put to the stake or when they were burned or, or being executed or whatever, they would say something to the effect like, well, you can do this to my body, but I'm out of reach then. I'm out of reach then. There's nothing more you can do. Well, that's what the Lord said. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that can do no more. He says, but fear him who, after he has killed the body, has power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Fear him. Friends, if we could understand the insignificance of man and the insignificance of what man can do to us and the significance of God, and the significance of what God can do to us, it would change our lives completely. We wouldn't be so enthralled to human opinion and human perception, peer acceptance, or whatever on earth it is. We would live our lives in the fear of God. That's what our Lord said. They can't really harm you. 
It's in that sense that Isaiah the prophet says that no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. You can sometimes wonder about a text like that and say, well, what do you mean that no weapon formed against you shall prosper? I mean, the saints have been sawn in half. They've been strangled. They've been burned. What do you mean by saying no weapon formed against you shall prosper? Well, he means just this, that they can't touch you, take away your reward, because God is delivering you from these trials and tribulations into glory and to receive a crown of life. So what was the point, for example, Jewish tradition tells us that when the writer to the Hebrews speaks of the saints being sawn in half, that it was a reference to King Manasseh sawing the prophet Isaiah in half. What's the point? He's only hastening Isaiah's reward. Can't touch you. Neither can disease, neither can war or famine. Can't touch you. That's why Paul says, in Romans 8, talking about this kind of tribulation, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You could even ask, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, shall tribulation do it? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, he says, in these things, in the tribulation, in the famine, in the sword, we are more than conquerors through him who goes out conquering and to conquer. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, he says, that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, or powers, things present now or anything to come, nothing in the heights above, nothing in the depths beneath, any created thing anywhere you look in the universe and beyond, nothing anywhere shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, O Lord. That's why no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Now, I want in closing to bring before you two pictures of this conquest. For the first one, let's go forward a few chapters where the white horse comes back. If you go to Revelation 19 and verse 11. Now, we haven't seen the white horse since chapter 6. Suddenly, verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And we're given more detail this time. He who sat in him was called Faithful, capital F, and True, capital T. How thankful we are that these things are true of our Savior. These are his titles. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, sees everything, discriminates, judges. And on his head, notice this time, are many crowns. Uh, so not only has he been crowned with glory and honor, but as he has advanced with the gospel, one crown after another is being added to him. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Now notice who's riding with him this time. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. 
It's not the angels. This is the church redeemed. This is the, for example, the souls of the people that we saw earlier in chapter 5 who were saying, how long, O Lord, how long? Here suddenly they're riding with him. They're following him on, well, lo and behold, they're on white horses as well. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. He's going to execute judgment this time, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This man on the white horse this time isn't coming out to do his gospel work. This is taking us to the end where he's going out to wrap it all up. And when he comes back, it is to wrap it all up. And he brings the multitude of his saints back with them because they know it's time for the establishing of judgment and righteousness upon the earth, which he will establish when he makes all things new. That's the first picture. The conqueror has conquered this time. The second picture is just taking us back to Revelation. If you just turn back where you were. Revelation 6 and verse 12. You'll remember this because this is after the horsemen are released. And right throughout the period between Christ's coronation and the consummation, they are constantly visiting the earth, bringing God's judgments and chastisements on nations, people, churches. Until at last in verse 12, with the opening of the sixth seal, we come to the final judgment. Earthquake, sun black, the moon like blood, stars of heaven falling to the earth, total destruction. Everything is in meltdown, like I said in the morning. And all the people that you see scurrying around in verse 15 are, well, they're all unbelievers, aren't they? Kings of the earth, the great, the rich, commanders, mighty men, slaves and free. You say, well, that's everybody. No, it's not. These are people who are hiding themselves in the caves and in the rocks. Believers don't do that. In fact, believers at this point aren't around, if you'll stay with me for a second. They're saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lord's people don't want to be hidden from the Lamb. Hide us because the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? Where are the believers? Well, that's why we have a little side shot in chapter 7. Where we see the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of God's judgment. And this judgment is not allowed to be released until another angel arises with a seal. Remember the king's seal in the morning? Well, he's got the king's seal, the seal of the living God. And he cries out to the four angels who are about to release God's judgment. Touch nothing, he says, until we have sealed, verse 3, the servants of God on their foreheads. And the number of the sealed is 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, some people confine this to the number of Jews that are saved. Others take it as being just an Old Testament picture of the church of God, the elect and the chosen. In any case, 
I just want, I don't want to make a, a case for either of these. It would just divert us too much. It's sufficient to say for now, so in the time we have left, that these are God's people. And you'll notice that they're all getting a seal in their foreheads. That's God's way of saying, before the winds come, he says, they're mine. And these winds may bring, bring all kinds of things into the world, but they are mine. They are the kept ones. The Lord knows them that are, that are his. That's the seal that's on them. The Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, the kept ones. And in fact, when these winds are actually released and God's judgment finally comes upon the earth, God's people are nowhere to be seen. Why not? Because he's taken them home. That's why you don't see at the opening of the sixth seal any believers running around. Paul tells us that God, before he visits the catastrophe on the earth, brings his church home. At the second coming, this is not the rapture that people speak about. This is the actual, the last time when those who are believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So, so where are they? Verse 9, I looked and behold, a great multitude. They're escaping the winds, which no man can number. Of all nations. In other words, the last tribulation that comes on earth is one that God delivers us from, not in and through, but from, period. He shifts us up out of this world before he releases the final judgment. And there they all are, a great multitude that no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. These are the ones that believers got. Um, the martyrs got early on. They've been waiting 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years with palm branches in their hands. Salvation belongs to a God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Where did they all come from? Well, they've come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they are before the throne of God. Verse 15. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. That's the end of trials and troubles. It's a wonderful thing to look forward to, friends. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. That's a, an everlasting shepherding. And lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'll finish just where I began this morning, really. There's times upon us that are times of troubles, upheavals, and convulsions. A queen passed away, a new king on the throne. There's a king in heaven whose kingdom never ends. And he's our king, friends, if we're Christians, and he's on our side. And on our side, he constantly remains. And we know that he'll deliver us either from trouble or in trouble and through trouble. And as our Lord Jesus taught us, in this world, 
you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, show us mercy and grace and favor. Enable us to rest in your tender care and in your ability to shield us from the heat of the most burning, fiery furnace. We have known a little of what it is to be kept, but we know that the hotter the fire, the greater your keeping will be. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged without even the smell of the burning upon their hair. And you will bring your people through also. We bless you for what is untouchable within us, what the devil cannot lay hold of. We thank you for the way in which you preserve your own work in the souls of your people, so that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. Enable us, O Lord, to conquer along with our Savior, even to be more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's um, close by singing in Psalm 72. The whole Psalm 72, you remember from the morning, is actually a description of the perfect, peaceful, and glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last three verses, which we often sing, particularly at communion time, uh, remind us of the glory of his name, which forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him. There's no other place to be blessed but in him. And blessed all nations shall him call. That's a wonderful prophecy. So blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, that's of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. For he alone does wonderful works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. And may this quickly come to pass. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. Let's stand and sing to God's praise. His name forever shall
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.